Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. We're delighted to introduce this evening's event, The Soviet State and the Avant-Garde, um, which our panel will be exploring the relationship between the Soviet leadership and the avant-garde art movement in Russia after the 1917 revolution and how this was reflected in the artwork produced in this period as seen in the current exhibition Revolution Russian Art 1917-1932. On the panel are Professor Christina Loda um, and Konstantin Akinsha, um, who our chair will introduce in a moment. Um, but I would like to introduce our chair for this evening, who is Theodora Clark, who is a curator, art historian, critic, and freelance journalist. She is the founder of Russian Art and Culture and was director of Russian Art Week in London. She lectures widely on both Russian and modern art across the UK and abroad and is a frequent commentator in the media. So please join me in welcoming um, Theodore Clark and our panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kira. Um, thank you all for giving up your Friday evening to come, especially on such a lovely sunny day. And I hope you've all had a chance to see the wonderful exhibition next door in the galleries at the Royal Academy. And I'd like to start off by introducing our two very distinguished panellists. And sitting to my right, I have Constantine Akinja, who is an independent scholar currently based in Italy and a contributing editor to Art News magazine. He's written many books, which include The Holy Place, Architecture, Ideology and History in Russia, and also on Russian modernism. And next to him, I have Professor Christina Lodder, who's the Honorary Professor of the History and Philosophy of Art at the University of Kent. She's also the President of the Malevich Society, and she's written extensively on Russian art of the early 20th century, including books on constructivism, Malevich, and she's produced a number of exhibition catalogue articles, including for this exhibition. So I'd like to start off this evening by kicking off with a, a question just to set the scene of what happened in 1917. And how was it that artists initially responded to the revolution? There was this need to create this new visual identity. So perhaps, Christina, you could start us off with where we were in 1917. Well, of course, um, what's interesting about 1917 is that you have the February Revolution, which gets rid of the Tsar which gets rid of the autocracy and institutes the provisional government. And artists take the opportunity to wrest control of the art world from the imperial household. Before this, the Imperial Academy had really governed the art world. And the avant-garde artists and artists of all persuasions begin to organize themselves. So there are these unions they set up and they emphasize their freedom from the state, their independence from the state. And that changes in 1917 when the Bolsheviks take power. Of course, they announce that property is theft. They are institute the workers' state. And it's a rather different position. Um, artists respond very individually to this. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about Malievich um, because he epitomizes, if you like, some of the shifts and attitudes that some of the avant-garde artists embrace. So initially, he is actually serving, but when the February Revolution happens, he's actually serving in the army. And he becomes a delegate to the soldiers' committee for art, and he sets up a workers' art academy. And then in October, oh, and he joins the leftist federation of artists, a sort of union of right left-wing artists, and in October, he puts his support 
behind the Bolsheviks. He becomes interim commissar for protecting all the artworks within the Moscow Kremlin. And this doesn't mean to say he's a Bolshevik, but it does mean that he supports the Bolsheviks. He does support change. And we know this because in the spring of 1918, he writes a series of articles in which he likens the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution of October, to a storm, a kind of elemental force which has overtaken Russia and has swept everything before it, swept away all the old structures and started given the possibility for something new, that on this kind of tabula rasa, that something new will grow. And so in, in spring 1918, he is very, very positive about the revolution. That changes slightly um, in April, when the Bolsheviks move against the Moscow Federation of Anarchists. And if Malievich is attached to any kind of political ideology at this point, it's really to anarchism. And so he writes that he's really upset with the Bolsheviks and he's not going to support them because they've moved against the anarchists. And then, of course, when the, when the civil war really gets underway and it looks as though the old order is going to come back, Malievich decides to put his support, as indeed a lot of anarchists do, behind the Bolsheviks. So it's a very... Even those first few months after um, October are really quite varied and that kind of individual approach is typical of other artists as well i mean like um, vladimir tatlin who supports the revolution and indeed goes on to create the monument to the third international like malievich tatlin works for the bolsheviks um, he he um, works for something called the Department of Fine Arts, which is set up within the Commissariat of Enlightenment. And this is to really run artistic affairs. So artists, avant-garde artists, tend to support the Bolsheviks. They tend to identify at this point, as Malievich and Tatlin do, their kind of rejection of artistic traditions with the rejection of political traditions, with the political autocracy. Their, if you like, their espousal and promotion of artistic freedom, they identify with the political freedoms which they think, they think, <laughs> that the Bolsheviks are going to offer them. So there is this sense of this liberation and they identify with that. And um, Tatlin is centred in Moscow and he's responsible for Lenin's plan of monumental propaganda and as part of this he produces this model which you see here which is about seven metres high um, or was seven metres high and it's his model for a monument to the Third International and it's dedicated to this organisation that was itself dedicated to promoting and encouraging and indeed creating a world revolution. So he really does express through these spirals going up, through these, um, this huge building, which was supposed to be higher than the Eiffel Tower, and to enclose these glazed structures within it. Um, he wanted to express his attachment to the revolution, its dynamism. He produces this kind of machine of revolution. He wants to express his attachment to the revolution and his belief in the revolution, but also through his work to take that revolution further, to promote it and to create a building which will act as a headquarters for disseminating the new message of Bolshevism. 
And constantly that's a good place to bring you in because we can see in the early 1920s that artists start to become increasingly political in their work. There's this role of propaganda. We can start to see the rise of sort of film, photo montage, posters. I think your next image is a good example of that. If you could just explain about photo montage. Yeah, and it's a big difference between uh, Malevich and Tatlin and the generation of constructivist artists who were uh, uh, producing photo montages because from the very beginning, very fast, they became uh, real servants of propaganda. Uh, the beginning of political photo montage is connected with 1924, the year of the death of Lenin, uh, when, in a sense, image returned to the Soviet art which actually uh, Malevich did not like at all and protested against the uh, creation of political icons, but his protest was not heard. So artists like uh, Gustav Klutzis, like Senkin, like Alexander Rochenko, immediately after Lenin's death produced avalanche of photo montages, which uh, were quite strange. In a sense, they had obviously archaic qualities. Their iconography really remi reminded orthodox icons. Uh, I'm not sure that it was uh, made consciously. It was just an uh, attempt to create political icon, maybe keeping in mind impression of Russian orthodox art. However, it was extremely efficient way of production of images. From the beginning, montage artists were um, glorifying American tailory series and wanted to see this new art as a kind of um, uh, Ford um, assembly line for assemblage of artworks. And they created this Ford assembly line. You know, just using scissors, glue, and uh, photo images, um, they created new visual face of the country and they created propaganda which was really needed. You have to understand what's go, what was going in the country after the revolution. We are talking about a country, 80% of population of which were illiterate. And uh, of course, Bolsheviks tried to organize campaign for liquidation of illiteracy, but it was taking time. And uh, in the beginning, um, they used images to um, proselytize and to influence population, and it's proved to be very efficient. In difference to Malevich, or in difference to Tatlin, people like Klutis became real servants of this political system. And it's ironic that in the end of the day, Klutis was killed during Stalinist purges, being absolutely devoted Bolshevik. But, uh, uh, in a sense, these people paved road for the future socialist realism because even doing these strange iconic montages, they succeeded in very first way to create new iconography of the Soviet art, which later was used and abused until the end of the Soviet Union. And this montage, Lenin and Children, became topic for the zillions of socialist realist paintings which of course were different in style, but were depicting Lenin surrounded by nice, cute children. And um, uh, so iconography of the socialist realism, in a sense, was produced by constructivist photomontage artists. And you've selected a few other icons here, if I just yeah. go forward to but the next one. If in uh, constructivist photomontage, usage of these icons maybe was unconscious, 
this is a poster made by more, much more traditionalist artists, uh, more, but obviously he was understanding that he is um, um, creating these posters for illiterate masses. And he simply used iconography of the Holy Virgin of the burning bush, which was quite popular Russian Orthodox iconography, <laughs> and um, 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 turned it into the Bolshevist poster. It's very important um, uh, element of the culture of the 20s, and many of Russian philosophers of the period who were anti-Bolshevist and who left the country. Uh, like, for example, Berdyaev, very soon started to talk about new Middle Ages. Yes, this time he had aftertaste of Middle Ages, uh, which is connected with the social process in the country. You have to understand that educated classes of the ancien regime were basically eliminated or lost any influence. Crowds of peasants were moved to the cities. And Russian society after the revolution is living through the process which uh, uh, was uh, named archaicization by uh, uh, Russian uh, historians and sociologists researching this uh, period during the last years. And it was really archaicization. So this archaic avant-garde art uh, became a part of this process. And Christina, can I just pick up on what was happening with the new institutes of the higher culture? So, of course, in Russia, traditionally, we had the Imperial Academy of the Arts, which, of course, disbanded after the revolution. So how did these avant-garde artists become involved with these new Soviet art institutions? Well, I mean, the schools, the art schools were reformed. Um, while the avant-garde was running artistic affairs during the Civil War, that's between 1918 and 19, end of 1920, um, they reformed the art schools. They abolished the old structure of ac academic training. So instead of studying casts and then um, drawings from the past, um, there was a new kind of training instituted. Students could do whatever they liked. So it was individual. People, artists could do whatever they liked. They could train with whoever they liked. So um, there was a range of studios from quite conservative artists right through to Malievich, Tatlin, Kandinsky. All of these artists taught within what were called the state free art studios, which existed from 1918 to the end of 1920. And these accepted anyone. Didn't matter what education you had, you could go to art school. And there, you could train exactly as you wanted to. You could train with Kandinsky, you could train with Malievich, you could train with um, someone more conservative, um, with Isaac Brodsky or someone like that. So it was, the state free art studios were really about individual freedom. And they really were about kind of this sense of self-expression. But, of course, this couldn't last. It was undisciplined. At one point, students were allowed to change studios every week, and this became completely untenable. Then it was once a month. And then, of course, they had to stay there for the whole year. <laughs> Just became they were moving around far too much. So it became a chaotic, kind of bureaucratic nightmare. And they began to institute more structure into art education. And this led to a reform um, at the end of 1920 in which some kind of structured art education was imposed. So they had what was called a first year 
basic course in which they studied the essential elements of art, um, line and plane and form and colour, and then they specialised in one of the faculties, sculpture, painting, graphics, what architecture, whatever. So this kind of the very structured academic training of the pre-revolutionary period gave way to anarchy and then gave way to a different kind of structure, a structure in which assimilated some of the avant-garde ideas about the basic elements of art, the way that form and colour could react independently of subject matter. So artists of all persuasions could kind of join in this, in the schools. And in fact, the schools become, all through the 20s, places where artists of all kinds of persuasions can find somewhere to work, somewhere to get, get some money to feed themselves. So it becomes a sort of support apparatus as well. <laughs> I just wanted to add a few words because in the same time, the 20s became time of very tough competition. Because for a short time, avant-garde artists uh, basically got monopoly. And it's very interesting when they got monopoly, how they changed, because before the revolution, all these avant-garde artists dreamed about destroying museums and throwing the Sistine Madonna from the bottom contemporanea. And the first thing which they did after the revolution, they created a museum for avant-garde art, buying works from themselves to this museum. It was called Moscow Museum of Painterly Culture. And the idea was to franchise this museum to open, open departments in all provincial towns and to put collection of avant-garde art everywhere. It did not work. It only probably branch was, which was really created, was uh, Yekaterinburg. But they got the power. And of course, realists who felt oppressed were fighting against them. It was a lot of infight in the art circles. Yeah, but you've got, to, you've got to admit that one of the reasons the avant-garde took over was that the realist artists and the previous academicians, when everything was tough in the cities, and it was during the Civil War, there wasn't enough food and there wasn't enough fuel, these academicians went out to their duchess, went into the countryside where food and warmth were a little bit more available. So it's not just that, um, you know, it was actually quite uncomfortable in the cities. Um, and um, the avant-garde did run artistic affairs. They weren't completely altruistic, but neither were they completely cynical. No, Yes, yes, and I think, you know, the <laughs> academic artists before, the academicians had also yeah. dominated, and that was the practice. You know, before the revolution, the art world in Russia had been dominated by the Imperial Academy and the members of the Imperial Academy. After the revolution, and the academicians had disappeared into the ether, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the avant-garde took their place and thought, okay, it's time for us, it's our time to run artistic affairs as we want it. So I think that there is a kind of, um, in a sense, they were just doing what they had been shown to do, be, to do by the academicians. I mean, there's a different way of looking at this two Indeed. ways. <laughs> and um, if you go see the exhibition, you'll be struck by how many fantastic movements appeared in Russia in the early 20th century. And for me, I think that's why Russian art history of the early 20th century 
is so exciting. Because I think as art historians, we tend to think of it as a very linear approach. So kind of, we have post-impressionism, we have cubism, we have fauvism. But I think what you've all seen in the show is that actually in Russia, there are all these movements which are competing at the same time. And there's this huge flourishing of creativity. So could you just explain a bit about particularly the rivalry between the constructivists and what was going on with Tatlin, of course, Malievich and suprematism. And we've got that wonderful room in the exhibition with that wall of all of the geometrical canvases by Malievich. So could you just explain about those two movements and, and the rivalry between the two leaders? Well, Malievich's suprematism really begins in 1915 when he paints the black square and the kind of zero of form. And he imbues this with a kind of metaphysical resonance. He places it, um, when he exhibits it in 1915 December, he places it across the corners of the room as an icon would be displayed in a, in a Russian Orthodox home. So he gives it a resonance. He also associates suprematism with the fourth dimension, both sense of time, a different space, but also a different perception of reality. So Malievich suprematism is really based on um, going back to the basics of pictorial form, but also looking at the sensations that that kind of basic essential pictorial form can communicate. Kind of mystical undertone to this, Tatlin is completely different. Um, Tatlin um, goes to Paris, comes back, and in spring 1914 produces a whole load of constructed sculptures, which are built up from found bits of material in space. Very emphasis on the materiality of the form, the incorporation of space. And it's that materialism which is embedded in the um, Monument to the Third International. And it's that materialism, that sense of very kind of explicit attachment to politics, that sense of wanting to participate in the production or the creation of a new Bolshevik society, but on its terms. So constructivism once embraces Marxist materialism. It says it wants to achieve what they call the communistic expression of material structures. So it's a very different approach. Malievich wants to transform the world into a suprematist utopia. The constructivists want to use their art to create useful things which will help to produce a communist utopia. So there's a difference of emphasis. And can I just bring Kandinsky in as well? Because, oh, yes. of course, he's a completely different style of abstract painting, but working at exactly the same date. And how does he kind of fit into that sort of trio of what's happening? <laughs> it's very difficult. I mean, what is interesting about Kandinsky is that he plays quite an active role in Russia over the revolutionary period. Um, he sets up the Institute of Artistic Culture in Moscow. He's responsible for writing its program. He also is kind of associated with the um, establishment of the um, Academy of Artistic Sciences. So he really does a great deal in, in investigating, sort of establishing the science of art. But he finds himself increasingly kind of, especially with the spiritual emphasis, out of kilter with the Soviets. And he really becomes isolated. His art doesn't, if you like, generate a movement, whereas Malievich has his supporters, Tatlin has his supporters. Kandinsky doesn't really have any supporters. He's a kind of lone figure. Um, and eventually, in 21, he leaves and re returns to Germany, and then, of course, goes and works at the Bauhaus. 
I think that's an important point as well, is to talk about the kind of the European context. And of course, over many centuries in Russia, there's been this long tradition of cultural exchange between Russia and Europe, particularly between Paris and Moscow. And of course, we've got um, figures like Sergei Diaghilev in the sort of 1910s who are going with the Ballet Russe to Paris to present kind of the latest works by Leon Baksk and Rurik and Goncharova. And of course, we have the collection of Sergei Shashukin in Moscow, where young artists could sit and could copy directly from Gauguin, from Matisse, and some of the kind of the greatest artists working in Europe. And how aware were the Russian avant-garde, and maybe this is a question for you, Konstantin, of what was happening with the modernist movements in Europe? Yes, it's, we, are, but we, are talking, oh, <laughs> we are talking about a little bit different set of people. Because of course they were connected to um, uh, French avant-garde. Of course they had like this absolutely crazy ideas. And uh, the source of inspiration was there. I can give you only one, one anecdote. It's a Tatlin's trip to Paris to learn the secret of Picasso. Because they believe that Picasso has some methodological secret. And if he, they will know this secret, they can do even better than Picasso. So Tatlin came to Paris. Uh, he learned where Picasso's studio is. He dressed himself in the uh, Central Asian collab, dressed black glasses, pretending that he is, a, he is blind, and was sitting on the corner playing Ukrainian string instrument, very strange instrument called bandura. And his calculation was correct because when Picasso saw him, he immediately invited him to model. So Tatlin came in, was playing this bandura, Picasso was making sketches and then left the room. Tatlin immediately ran to another room, saw there some pieces of violin thrown around and started to make sketches, trying to understand the secret system of Picasso. Picasso came in, discovered that his model is not blind <laughs> and kicked him out. So that was our introduction to the secret of Picasso. Of course, these people were inspired, of course, Classical story about Brook going with his brother and with poet Lipschitz to his country estate. And Brook is telling two of them, you know, I just saw Alexandra Exter. He gave, she gave me the photograph of the current work of Picasso, black and white photograph. And his brother said, oh God, I will do it. I have, I, and it's untranslatable Russian version, the Picasso. <laughs> my new painting, how I, may, I will make it as Picasso. So it's very often judgment by black and white reproductions. It's a cultural uh, trend of creative mistakes. Why we had before the revolution this very peculiar, and after the revolution too, uh, definition Cuba futurism. So, which is a mixture of Cubism and Futurism, which were not mixing very much in Europe, as you can imagine. So, through creative mistakes, they really created very um, uh, interesting adaptation of these Western trends, which were seriously changed. They gave them impulse, but this impulse led to absolutely different things. Like, for example, Malevich, like, for example, Tatlin, which were uh, quite far from these initial French models, which were inspiring them in the beginning. 
And you mentioned there about um, Cubism, and I just wanted to pick up on Marc Chagall, who's probably one of the artists better known to the British public. And of course, there's a very famous work by him in the exhibition of him holding the hand of his wife, Bella, floating in the air above Vichebsk. And perhaps you could just mention about Vichebsk, and it wasn't just the focus in Moscow, but we had these other major cultural centres where artists were working. There was a whole school there. So could you explain a bit about Chagall and how he went to Paris and what he did in Vichebsk? Well, Chagall came back... Um, at the beginning of the First World War and was trapped in um, Vitebsk, um, where he, his native city. Um, and after the Russian, after the October Revolution, he became a commissar. And he actually set up the art school in Vitebsk. He um, requisitioned a banker's house. And this, <laughs> and this became the art school. And um, he invited Lizitsky, who was also Jewish, who was also from this area, to become um, a, a member of staff. And there were other people invited. Um, and Ivan Puni, whose work is in the um, exhibition as well. Um, and then Lizitsky um, suggested Malievich should come. And so Malievich was invited, and on the 5th of November, 1919, Malievich arrived in Vitebsk. Now, Vite, he, he said he'd left the darkness and the coldness behind, because Vitebsk, at this point, was just behind enemy lines. It was terribly well-provisioned, because it was one of the headquarters of the, um, behind the um, Western Front. Um, and so it was, it was very favorably um, fed and watered and he had better he had also higher wages than he'd got in Moscow so he was very very pleased to be there um, unfortunately the egos of Chagall and Malievich didn't really gel you know it, the, the building wasn't really big enough for the two of them um, the painting by Chagall actually in the um, exhibition initially started off as a decoration for um, the anniversary of the revolution in Vitebsk um, and about, it's about the joy of liberation, it's about the joy of freedom from oppression and this was particularly important for Jews because up until the point of the um, revolution they had been second class citizens, they had, couldn't live where they wanted or do what they wanted and so the revolution for them was a great liberation. But of course, you know, um, poor Chagall um, find himself ousted by Malievich, who took advantage of the fact that Vitebsk was this new kind of arena for activity, and he attracted a lot of his, the students, and eventually um, Chagall left um, rather disillusioned, but moved to Moscow and did these wonderful decorations for the Jewish theatre in, in Moscow. But um, yes, Vitebsk became an important area. And at Vitebsk, Malievich set up Unavis, which is the Champions of the New. And this was a group of, of artists who wanted to use suprematism to create a suprematist utopia, not a political utopia, but a suprematist utopia. And I think you can see in the exhibition even something like the ration card, which they did, not just the porcelain um, and the um, kind of decorations for um, fabrics and other things and um, for decorations for the, for, the, for the anniversaries of the revolution, but also just very small things like the ration card. I don't know how one would use this ration card. It is so beautiful. But this was the whole aspiration to create what Malievich called a colorous existence, an existence full of color, full of suprematist color, of course, and suprematist forms. But um, I just wanted to 
touch one point <laughs> connected to Novice and Malevich. On the other hand, we cannot not notice a bit of totalitarian tendency, a bit of sectarian element, which is starting even with uh, visual dominance, like handbands with black square. So, which very soon we are seeing other handbands, and I'm not making um, um, uh, full equalization of, uh, uh, with others. But, of course, Malevich is a very tough leader. And uh, all these attempts to create rituals, like uh, suprematistic uh, gymnastics and all these things which he is doing there. Ballet. Uh, ballet, <laughs> and keeping <laughs> these students quite in hand, especially talking about their stylistic devotion to yeah. the master and to supremacism as idea. It's a bit... Yes, it, it's rather interesting because the the, the creative committee of Univers yeah. actually, in theory, was run by the students. Yeah. And Malievich, in theory, was on the side and didn't have anything to do with it. But of course, between theory and practice was a completely different, <laughs> a different kettle of fish. And he was. He was a very um, charismatic, dominant personality, Malievich. Um, and um, clearly, even Chagall couldn't cope with them, um, you know, being, being second fiddle to him. Yeah. And you, you mentioned about the porcelain exhibition, yeah. and that's one of the objects that I love, because I don't know if you've all seen the underside of some of the objects, but they have these wonderful kind of suprematist teacups and the pots, and then if you turn it over, it's actually got a double stamp where it's got the kind of imperial Lomonsov porcelain factory, and then next to it, you've got the sort of the hammer and sickle <laughs> showing this is the new Soviet Union, which yeah, has been stamped. <laughs> used um, just um, naked white porcelain. Yes, the forms were the all there. Produced by the imperial factory, yeah. and they just painted it. And yes, because they left all this stuff in in the you know that was fired and never decorated. So yeah. so yeah. the the avant-garde artists just kind of thought, oh, we'll decorate this, and, and of course um, that's that, that's what they did. So they didn't always kind of reorganize the shapes. Although of course you see the pen set, that kind of um, set. Escritoire set, and that is, of course, reconstructed in, in suprematist forms. It's very interesting. It's not connected, but it's <laughs> just only other example of porcelain, which I encountered in my life with two marks having political meaning. It's an um, Austrian Augarten porcelain by Hoffmann, which was restamped made in Germany <laughs> after Anschluss. <laughs> And I want to turn now to talking about socialist realism and the new style of academic painting which was brought into Russia in the 1930s. And obviously the environment changed hugely since 1917. So could you just explain to us what it was like for artists once the new all-party decree was brought in and how the style of art changed for these avant-garde artists? Well, I mean, I think, I think actually 1932 was just the official kind of end. But the pressure on artists to conform to official requirements had really begun in the 20s. After the end of the Civil War and the institution of the new economic policy, the academicians had come back. <laughs> the realist artists had come back from their, their country cottages um, and kind of country houses and come, came back to what was now the capital in Moscow. And they became active. And they actually set up an organization called the Association of Artists of revolutionary Russia and they asked the Politburo what 
they should be called and they, what kind of themes they wanted. So this way, the Bolsheviks had a direct line to a group of artists whom they could rely on to give the kind of art which was figurative, accessible, clear in its messages, um, and not at all individualistic. And Ach, as it was called, Ach, Association of Artists of Revolution in Russia, becomes, became during the 20s, the weapon that the officialdom used, if you like, against the avant-garde. And you feel this. Um, in 1926, Malievich, who by this time was working in um, Leningrad, as it was by 26 was called, um, and had set up this Institute of Artistic Culture in which he kind of maintained his... Um, if you like, his investigation, his kind of avant-garde investigation of art, the essence of art, but within a kind of format which was much more scientific, so could much more be assimilated by the Soviets as something which was a scientific way of looking at art and how it should be made and how it should serve society. He's done this, but in 1926, his institute is attacked and he is tagged for kind of misusing government funds to actually disguise, to misuse them, to promote his own ideas about suprematism. And he's, so he's attacked in the press by someone who's not necessarily, who's just a journalist, but who is attached to this kind of increasingly powerful, um, conservative, realistic power group um, in, in, in Russia. So 1932, Malievich goes off, sorry, in 1927 to Berlin, comes back and is, begins to kind of assimilate and kind of a compromise with figuration. And you see something like this, the Malievich sportsman of 1930-31. This is before the decree abolishing all independent artistic organizations of 1932. And on the back of this is written um, sportsman in a suprematist format. And so he's, what he's using is trying to assimilate his language of suprematism to a figurative image, but also to a figurative image which the Bolsheviks liked, because of course they were very keen on athletics, they were very keen on the body beautiful, they were very keen on the new Soviet man and woman who would be physically perfect. So athletes were generally a good thing. So he's A, going for figuration, He's going for a subject matter which is um, officially kind of approved of, but he's also um, using suprematist language and asymmetry and these bright colours, a white ground. But finally, he's also using a reference to icons as well. So he is bringing all these factors together in this painting, um, and he's trying from this point on, from 27 onwards, he's really kind of shifting and accommodating um, official requirements. And if you go to the next one, which is Red Cavalry of 1932, you can see it's almost abstract, except for these little red horsemen. And um, the Red Cavalry played an enormously important role during the Civil War. So they were heroes of the Civil War. And so by calling it the Red Cavalry and doing these little horsemen, he gives what is almost essentially an abstract painting a kind of ideological um, kind of a raison d'etre. Yeah, but this change, of course, was, you're absolutely right. This change <laughs> did not happen uh, no. after 32. It's, we can see this um, um, development in progress from basically um, uh, the end of the revolution. Yeah. 
And um, in the Soviet Union, we had a joke. And it's a feature film about uh, post-revolution years and Lenin and Lunacharsky, who was a commissary of enlightenment, attending an exhibition and looking at the paintings of Malevich and Lenin is asking Lunacharsky, sorry, what is, do you understand this art? And Lunacharsky is answering Comrade Lenin, to be true, not. And then it's the voice of narrator. It was the last Soviet government which didn't understand visual arts. <laughs> because really afterwards, this government started to understand visual arts and started to demand to see on the exhibition walls what they could understand. Uh, which is playing quite important role in formation of this policy too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think the uh, personal aesthetic preferences of Comrade Stalin played certain roles. <laughs> yes, as they did in the Palace of the Soviets too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, no, Stalin. Um, but of course, I mean, Lenin too. Lenin too. He said that Lunacharsky should be whipped for his futurism, meaning that he should be whipped for his support of the avant-garde. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think from Lenin made his desires known, but he wasn't in a position to impose them. Yeah. And that's Sorry. the difference, because at the end of the Civil War, of course, Russia is in chaos, it's economic collapse, and Lenin has to compromise with capitalism. He has to produce NEP, and he has to kind of, therefore, he cannot, if you like, impose his will as much as he would have liked to. And just looking at that image by Malevich, I mean, what a contrast with, say, in the first from the exhibition, you've yeah. got that Brodsky, the very famous image of Lenin sitting at his desk and writing the letter. And that almost has a kind of photographic, realist quality. Mm. So how difficult was it for artists once this new kind of conditions came in from the regime? It must become increasingly difficult for them to work. Obviously, a number of artists left Russia and very famous art critics like Nikolai Punin, of course, famously got sent to the Gulag. And actually, I think it became increasingly repressive for artists. So how difficult was it for artists painting in this style? Was it very much the choice of you now need to leave or you need to adapt because you're not going to be able to exhibit your works that you've been showing? I, I think there was an a process of adaption. I and mean, you see that in the exhibition with Filonov, Filonov going from like the, the formula of the Petrograd proletariat in 1921. And then you see the Putilov um, workers of um, later on, and indeed the collective farmer, in which he uh, tries to kind of absorb um, the requirements of clarity, of um, legibility, of figuration, and narration, and a narrative within this sort of art system um, that he developed. And of course, it's a, it's a losing battle, and um, it becomes an increasingly losing battle. Tacklin goes to making, during the 30s, he makes paintings of um, meats and, and, and flowers. Um, Lenin, um, Malievich, 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 of course, um, kind of goes into that mode of the paintings of um, Punin that we see in the exhibition, this very kind of almost archaic pre-Renaissance mode, proto-Renaissance mode. And uh, socialist realism. Yes, and, yes and, and socialist realism. So it's a great kind of emphasis. People try and manoeuvre during the 20s, but by the 30s and the beginning of a very kind of definite oppression, um, they begin to accommodate because... Um, at that point, too, the art schools are reformed and people lose their jobs. And it's a question of, you know, you have to kind of earn money somehow. And now the 
only possibility of earning money once NEP is over with collectivisation and the first five-year plan is the government. The government in all shapes and forms, in museums, whatever, but it's always through the government. So artists now are own, can only get money from the government. So they are dependent upon their patron and they, they, they bow to it or they kind of go into a kind of internal exile, you know. And you're showing here a photograph, oh, yes. one of the best rooms, I think, in the exhibition. Yes. Can you just explain to the audience what Le Tatlin actually is? It's um, a flying bicycle. Before he goes, before Tatlin gives up the ghost and goes back to play, do, doing theatrical decorations and um, little kind of still lives, he produces um, this flying bicycle. And the idea was that every Soviet man would have a flying bicycle in their backyard. And this would give back to Soviet man the feeling of flight. He said, I, <laughs> I want to give back to man the feeling of flight. And he said he didn't want people to fly in aeroplanes because that was the metal between you and the air around you. So you, you had to propel yourself through the air with this. And he spent several years working in the Novodievichy monastery on this construction. Um, and he made several models of it, some of which are still extant. This, of course, is a, repro a reconstruction, but the um, actual one of the actual models is still in Monino, which is a museum just outside of Moscow, which is given over to all aeronautical um, devices, um, the aeroplanes, but also um, things like the um, Sputniks and things like that. Every, sort of all the sort of space. It's a closed museum, so you've got this wonderful museum, but you can't go into it because it's um, a military establishment. <laughs> <laughs> but it's for reason. <laughs> it's for reason because uh, he, of course, wanted to do these bicycles for all Soviet people, but they were done first and foremost for the Soviet army. And in a sense, it was a good sham because for the moment, the army believed that these things can fly. So when he was sitting in this tower, he was financed by the army. There are beautiful stories about this Litatlin because at some moment Chkalov, who was this famous Russian pilot, the first pilot flying from Russia to the United States, non-stop flight, came to, was asked to evaluate the scene and he came to this uh, tower and saw this scene and was stunned, could not understand what is this, and asked Tatlin, can it fly? And Tartan answered, I don't care. You are a pilot, you have to decide can it fly or not. I'm producing it. So in a sense, it's a parody. It's really the end of the constructivist project, which is very typical for the whole Russian history. Because uh, before the revolution, the symbols of Russia, according to Marquise de Custine, were the so-called Tsar cannon in the Kremlin, which never could shoot, and Tsar bell, the biggest bell in the world, which never could ring. <laughs> in addition to this, we have a Litatlin, which never could fly. <laughs> so it's a, a great story of Russian utopianism. <laughs> and that leads me on to, we were talking about sort of the role of propaganda and how the Soviet state created this kind of new history using visual propaganda. And I, I love these pictures that you've selected here, Constantine. Do you want to explain about this kind of lack of miniatures and what happened with the so-called sort of fake law? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very interesting story because before we saw uh, political posters which um, uh, constructivist artists turned into icons. Here you can say, uh, see political propaganda in the form of the lacquer box painted by real icon painters. 
which were forced to produce, to turn their art into posters. Uh, the story is unbelievable because this is fully uh, intellectually manufactured fake lore. It's not a tradition. Everybody believes this is lacquer boxes, are so Russian, so traditional. <laughs> I can give you one example. Um, uh, Walter Benjamin, famous German philosopher, when he came to Moscow in 1927, he was kind of scared of what he saw, and he started to collect Russian folklore, toys, etc. And he bought one lacquer box, which he loved, and it's describing his diaries, this black background, a uh, cigarette vendor, woman sitting with the apron with the words Mosel Prom, which was a uh, Moscow production uh, association, selling cigarettes, and it's so beautiful, and it's reminding him Russia. And a few pages before, uh, he is writing about his disappointment with Russian comedy films produced during the nap period, and the film which he saw, and which uh, he found absolutely appalling, it's called The Cigarette Vendor of Mostel Pro. <coughs> the poster from that film was used for the books <laughs> as the model, which he enjoyed so much. <laughs> so what did happen? Of course, before the revolution, in Russia, in um, uh, uh, Vladimir and Suzdal areas, were villages which were specializing on production of icons, the whole families. The, um, they were dividing their, um, uh, this work. One, people, uh, one person was painting faces, another person was painting trees, a uh, third person was making um, um, uh, panels for these icons. And it was a huge production, which uh, was both production for um, uh, Russian Orthodox Church and for Russian old believers, who in, uh, it was uh, part of the Russian Church, which did not recognize the church reform of uh, um, uh, 1666 and became a separate group, quite of oppressed and prosecuted by the Tsarist government. But they were using only old models of icons, which really were looking fully Byzantine and based on Byzantine iconographies. So these villages were producing these icons. Uh, the first problem started in the middle of 19th century when industrialization finally arrived to Russia because French company uh, which was producing uh, tins for food came with the idea that they can make very beautiful tin icons just <laughs> printed uh, on uh, press which um, started to circulate and damage very much icon production. Uh, uh, these icons were known all around Russia and people are calling them if you need you can pray if you need, you can use them to close your um, uh, ports. Uh, but anyway, they nearly destroyed icon production. By 1900, in Russia, interest to icon painting somehow came through resurrection. It was the Special Society of Protection of Icon Painting was created. These villages got a lot of orders, but then the revolution happened. And Bolsheviks did not need orthodox icons. They maybe needed political icons, but not orthodox, orthodox icons. The whole villages, we are talking a big area, of these icon painters became uh, fully unemployed and basically dying of hunger. They started to try different ideas. They wanted to produce some sellable kitsch, like, for example, the village of Stora tried to produce um, um, uh, linoleum carpets 
uh, which uh, had three models, um, uh, basket with kittens, uh, farewell at the well, and the first kiss. And the first kiss was not going very well. They could not sell them. <laughs> and at some moment in the village of Palik, a very interesting guy who was the icon painter called Ivan Golikov decided that something has to be done. And he came to Moscow and came to the Museum of Applied Arts where he met Anatoly Bakushinsky, who was this uh, um, very sophisticated art historian who came with the idea that they have to start to do lacquer miniatures. And first lacquer miniatures, uh, Magolikov found in Moscow two photo trays, which were made of papier-mâché. He cut their borders, made panels, and painted the first public miniature on advice of uh, Bakushinsky on this papier-mâché. Uh, they could not find topicality in the beginning. So Golikov used um, uh, uh, Doré engravings as a model for his miniatures. Bakushinsky said, no, you used your icon tradition. And then they started to pay, um, uh, to use all iconographies, like that iconography of um, uh, uh, Old Testament Trinity. Uh, but uh, just depicted in this situation, uh, reading room in the collective farm club, or other elements of Christian iconography, just changing these people into Bolsheviks and uh, changing, uh, uh, replacing saints by tractors. <laughs> it's proved to be extremely successful idea because it's immediately by 1924, Russian organizations. Uh, trying to find something to sell abroad, <coughs> jumped on these lacquer miniatures. In 1925, they were sent to Paris to um, uh, Exposition d'Art Decorative, and they took off. So first place was Paris, where on uh, uh, Saint-Denis, in very expensive shops, they started to sell these lacquer boxes. And step by step, they became a symbol of Russia and Russian folk art which they never been. It was the creation of one icon painter and one decadent art historian, <laughs> uh, which um, was fully adopted by Stalinist culture. But it's interesting that by 1937, 38, even this started to change. They needed this um, fake lore, but this fake lore had to be more realistic. So instead of um, style of uh, icon painting, the style was changed to more or less boring, realistic um, painting. So these boxes turned into uh, miniature socialist realist paintings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it was a very interesting um, artificial construction of so-called folk tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see examples at the exhibition, there are a few uh, stunning objects of um, uh, talking about Palace of Soviets. They had the icons, but then they added sort of folk motifs around the side. So it's also a kind of, you know, a fake, a complete fake. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, thank you for that. That was very insightful. I'd just like to open up the floor to questions. You haven't actually mentioned, um, but I can't help noticing the amazing similarity between the fascist art, fascist buildings, the degenerate art which they banned and the Russian socialist 
realist art and architecture is, to me, unbelievably similar, and so are the persecutions. Mm. What, what, what do you make of that? May I start? Yes, yes, by all means. Yeah, it's a um, uh, legit question. And it's a very interesting story because you have to add one more element. You have to add Italians into this equation. And Italian fascist art. Uh, because, for example, we are, we are dealing with totalitarian systems, which have obvious similarities, obvious differences and obvious similarities. You can see influences. I uh, personally believe that campaign against degenerate art was quite of inspired by the Soviet Museum reforms and exhibitions in the Tretyakov Gallery with the slogans over Malevich painting, uh, the bourgeois art in the dead, and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they did it earlier than Germans. People were looking at each other. So we have to really research connections, influences, or for example, uh, talking about avant-garde and photo montage, depressed exhibition in Cologne where Lisitsky made this famous pavilion uh, with photo frescoes, became a source of inspiration for Italians who two years later made a huge exhibition, Mostra di Revoluzione Fascista, which was fully based on photo montage murals, which were just development of um, Lisitsky ideas. So both in radical and in conservative, these ideas are floating in the air. And um, of course, you can make some um, comparison between uh, a campaign against degenerate art in Germany and what was going on in Russia. But I want to say that the Soviet Union, uh, as usually, was the first. Because um, um, uh, exhibitions, like very didactic exhibitions, so with explanation of um, uh, class function of paintings or why the degenerate started in Moscow and not in Munich. Uh, because Moscow, it was 19, I think that it's 1930 or 1929, this exposition with slogans, and Munich is coming much later, 37. I'm fascinated about uh, Malievich, that um, he was like forging an art curriculum. How you mentioned understand, you mentioned investigate. He was, I suppose what you could say, a bit of an elitist, perhaps, at that time. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And why didn't he go to the powerhouse with... <laughs> well, it, actually, um, there is a story there, um, not a, a very um, illuminating, well, illuminating for Malievich. Um, in 1927, Malievich went to the West. He came to the West. He came via Warsaw, where he had an exhibition, and then he had a big exhibition in Berlin. And while he was in Berlin in 1927, he visited the Bauhaus, but they didn't want him. He offered himself. But the trouble was... Malievich was associated with mysticism and the Bauhaus didn't want anything to do with the spirituality that Malievich epitomized really. Um, and so although Lizitsky was much in favor of the Bauhaus and Lizitsky was, if you like, um, a disciple or connected with Malievich, Malievich himself was frowned upon and I'm afraid he didn't get a job. <laughs> despite the efforts of Maholi Naj, who actually wanted to take him, but others not. No, no, I mean, 
Pardon? Why was he in prison for two months? He was imprisoned because he'd been in the West. Um, I mean, at this point, um, there were several reasons why you might get arrested, extensive contact with the West, um, a suspicion of being a counter-revolutionary, having come from the West, and his visit to the West caused him to be suspicious as, as, as a, an object of suspicion, as well as the fact that he produced these paintings that nobody wanted, or at least no, nobody in officialdom wanted. So, um, you know, he was really um, not very much um, wanted, and he was arrested, and he was imprisoned, but then he was released because he had a friend, um, one of, a supporter in Sovnarkom, in the Supreme Soviet, and this is why he got released. He might have been arrested again, but he died of cancer in 1935, so there wasn't time. Otherwise, he might have been arrested at the same time as, say, someone like um, Punin was, you know, others. I've got two final quick questions, one for each of you. Um, the first is for you, Christina, which is, um, obviously, there's some wonderful artists in the exhibition, like Filonov and um, Petrov Vodkin, Kostodiev, and obviously we know who those artists are and probably everyone in this room, but they're probably not that well known to European audiences or to the average person if you stop them on the street outside the Royal Academy. And why do you think it is that those artists don't have such a high profile in the West? Well, I think part, partly it's because they, we don't have many works by them. Um, I think also they became, if you like, the soft end of socialist realism. They became the kind of semi, you know, not too kind of realistic, not too kind of oppressive, but kind of slightly adventurous within a kind of overall socialist aesthetic, um, socialist, in, um, socialist in meaning, realist in form. So they become associated and they became promoted very much in Russia and in the Soviet Union as, if you like, the soft end, the more acceptable end of socialist realism. And... This also kind of, when people went from the West, scholars went from the West, these were the paintings they saw on the walls and therefore they reacted against that. They wanted to see Malievich. And of course, there were no, Ma Malie Malie um, no Malievich paintings on the walls at this time. So they suffered from that. They suffered from not being here in the West. And I think also, I mean, particularly Filonov, and there have been exhibitions of Filonov, he is so distinctive. He's, he can't be fitted into a particular kind of stylistic category. And so we find it very difficult to assimilate him into our structure. And I kind of always think that he's something like William Blake is, <laughs> much okay. earlier on. That he is an artist who we might admire, but we can't really fit him into our general art historical structures. And this is why I think he sort of goes by the wayside. But he is an extraordinary artist. And, um, but my husband, who is an art historian, um, finds himself cold with, my, with Filonov. So it's a conundrum. It's a conundrum. There's obviously something about Filonov and Petrov Vodkin and Kostodiev that appeals to a certain kind of visual sensibility and not to others. And my last question was really for you, Constantin. Um, this is, of course, the year of the centenary of the Russian Revolution. And in the UK, we've got several exhibitions which are considering and reflecting on this kind of moment in history. We've got the Design Museum has a show, the British Library, Tate Modern is opening an exhibition later this year, and, of course, the Royal Academy. But I've noticed that Russia has been pretty quiet, shall we say, in terms of reflecting the last 100 years. Uh, why do you think that it's is? It's true. I think that in the end of the day, Russians had a chance to realize the old Trotsky idea of expert of revolution. Mm -hmm. 
because for um, uh, Putin's Russia is much more safer to send this revolution to London, <laughs> to New York, to Brussels, to Zurich and to other places where there are exhibitions because it's very interesting to observe like absolute inability to address the issue of the Russian Revolution in Russia today. Because people are trying to avoid this topic by all possible means. Uh, you could imagine absolutely different in some celebration, some serious approach, some no, revolution is bad. Because uh, we return back to the epoch of Nicholas II, and we are dreaming about Holy Union, which will prevent any revolutions anywhere. And uh, because of this, um, uh, the danger of discussion or remembrance of the revolutionary event is taken as an immediate political danger. So revolution is not for Russia. It's for beautiful halls of the Royal Academy. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, on that note, I think we should wrap it up. So I'd just like to say a huge thank you to our very illustrious speakers. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.